Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. We are in Philippians chapter 2, so please make your way there and let's pray. Father, all our hope is in you. All of it. It's in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection. It's in the gospel message, Father. All of our hope is in you, Father. And God, we confess that we need you this morning more than we need anything else. And we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. That You would make us a selfless and risk-taking church that loves you as our greatest treasure in this world and that we'd be passionate about taking the gospel message all the way to the ends of the earth. We know your plan, Father, is to redeem a people from every race and tribe and nation and tongue, and you're doing that even here all the way to the ends of the world. Your plan is to restore all of creation. We long for that day. And I pray that we would recognize that we're a part of a bigger story and that we would die to ourselves and take big risks to see your plan come to fruition. And then may you get the honor, Father, and may you get the glory through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to be looking at how gospel rehearsal produces selfless and risk-taking disciples. We're going to see that in the lives of uh, two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, at the beginning of the letter, of chapter, at the beginning of chapter 2 in this letter, Paul has called the Philippian church, if you remember, to have the same mind, not to look to their own interests, to look to the interests of others, and to really die to themselves. And then he goes in this section in verses 5 through 11 where he highlights the work of Jesus, how Jesus himself became a nobody and a slave, how he himself gave up all of his rights and served others ultimately at the cross. And so because of that, Paul picks up in verse 19 here, speaking of Timothy and Epaphroditus, he's going to show us how these two men emulate the sacrifice modeled by Jesus Christ. But we have to ask ourselves here today, what, what's the motivation? What drives someone to do this, to give up their lives, to live a selfless life, and to then take gigantic risks? for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the gospel and for God's glory. What gets inside somebody's mind and in somebody's heart to where their passion in life is to die to their self and to take big risks to see the kingdom of God grow? Now, remember last week Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, cut out all the grumbling, all the complaining, because that's kind of our default mode as churches, isn't it? We like to grumble and complain about the color of the carpet, the coffee, the parking spaces, the temperature in the room, the preaching, the music, all of those things. And there's something about Timothy and Epaphroditus that moved them out of that sphere of grumbling church members to, to be these kind of people that die to themselves and genuinely care about other people and take big risks in ministry to see the gospel spread and to help others. 
Something happened inside of their mind and in their heart to get them out of the sphere of grumbling into the sphere of, I don't care about myself anymore. It's all about Jesus and it's all about his people. Our big idea today is this sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others flows out of security in the gospel. When you live a selfless life, when you sacrifice and when you die to your desires so that God gets glory and so that his people receive good and they receive a blessing. And that's the only reason why we should sacrifice and live. And so that God gets glory and it brings good to other people. But that kind of mentality, that kind of sacrifice has to flow out of something. And for Timothy and Epaphroditus and for Paul, it flowed out of their security in the gospel. It flowed out of the security that they had everything that they would ever want and everything that they would ever need in the person of Jesus Christ. They would have it in their relationship with God. They would have it in the gospel message. So because they had everything that they would ever want and need, they were free to lose. They were free to lose their lives. They were free to lose their rights and give up their, their rights. They were free to, to, to come in last place. They were free to give up their dreams for that certain prominence and place of position because of their position in Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what motivated them to live that way. Look at verses 19 through 21. First, we're going to look at Timothy. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Remember the context? Paul is in prison in Rome. He's on death row. He's awaiting his death. He thinks he might be released. He's not sure. And Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippian church so that he can get a report. He can hear how the gospel has been advancing and bearing fruit among them. And then as he comes back, Timothy comes back, he says, I'm hoping to get this great report. I'll be cheered by news of you. My joy will be unleashed as I hear that you're living gospel-centered lives. And then Paul will say uh, in verse 24, he says, and I trust that I think I'm going to be released, and I'm going to come see you myself firsthand. But, but in between there, Paul's talking about Timothy, and he says, Timothy is this guy who is genuine, and he's real. And Paul says, I have no one like him. Literally, he says, I have no one like sold. I have no one who's knit together in soul with me like Timothy. There's a lot of people that are here helping me in my ministry in Rome, even though I'm in prison. There's people coming alongside me. But Paul said, there's something about Timothy that just sets him apart from the rest of the pack. And it's this, that he is genuinely concerned for the Philippians. He's not seeking his own interests, but those of Jesus Christ. He was not self-absorbed. He did not think that life revolved around him. It was all about other people. And how can I be a blessing to them? It reminds me of this story I heard of a woman who was at the airport awaiting her flight and she went into this crowded little gift shop and there were a few tables and strangers kind of had to share tables because there weren't many chairs and she sat down with her little package of cookies that she bought and she began reading her newspaper and shortly thereafter she heard this little crinkling of paper and she looked down from her newspaper and realized that the man sitting across the table from her was helping himself to her cookies. And so she drags the package of cookies a little bit closer to her and takes one out and starts eating it, goes back to reading her newspaper, and then she heard the crinkling of the paper again. Pulls down the newspaper, sees that this guy is eating another one of her cookies. So she drags the cookie package back closer to her, has another, goes back to reading, same thing happens. This time she sees that the man has broken the last cookie in half. He's left one for her and pushed it close to her. 
He finishes his cookie and gets up and walk away. And she's just flabbergasted, like, the nerve of this man to eat my cookies. So she eats the last half of her cookie. She reads her newspaper. Here's the, the boarding call, reaches into her purse to pull out her boarding pass, and her package of cookies are inside her purse. It's a picture of those church members and those Christians who live their lives as if everything and everybody should revolve around them. It's also a picture of Timothy who says, you know what, it's not about me. I give up my rights. That man gave up his rights to, to his cookies to a total stranger. See, we make the assumption that life is all about us. And whether we're in our home or in our neighborhood or in our workplace or here in this church, we function as if life is about us. It's part of our DNA. It's who we are. Because of Genesis 3, because of sin that has come into this world, our default mode, mode is that life is about us. It's my DNA. Paul says there's something different about Timothy. Something has arrested his heart and his mind to make him a person who genuinely cares about other people and is interested in the things that they're interested in and wants to see Christ-likeness come about in their lives. And what was that thing that arrested Timothy's heart and mind? It was none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul has talked about earlier in chapter 2. He's seen it modeled, that Jesus Christ died to his desires. He gave up his rights. He became a nobody. He became a slave and went to the cross to bring sinners to God for God's glory. That's what's motivating Timothy here. Now look in verses 22 through 24. Paul begins to talk more about Timothy. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul's saying, you guys know Timothy. He's selfless. It's not about him. You know, in fact, he says, he has proven character. They've seen it. Timothy went with Paul on his second missionary journey to Philippi. They saw firsthand that Timothy was a proven man. He was a man who was selfless and cared about other people. They had seen it firsthand in Timothy's life. And they saw it clearly in his ongoing commitment to the gospel in this close relationship with Paul. Because in verse 22, look what Paul says. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me. In the gospel. Notice that it's not he worked for me in the gospel. We worked together for the gospel. You would expect Paul, with all of his credentials as an apostle of the Lord, to say, Timothy served like a son serves his father. He says, He served with me like a son serving alongside and with his father in the gospel. Now, this is what we know of Timothy. He was genuinely concerned with others. He does not seek his own interests, but those of Jesus. He has proved himself, and he has served with Paul in gospel ministry. What caused Timothy to be this way? What caused him to live a life of sacrifice? What would cause one of us to become like Timothy, lay down our own desires and die to them and become interested in other people? 
It takes the gospel message. Timothy was secure in the gospel. He was so secure in the gospel that when you read in Acts chapter 16, when Paul hears about Timothy and says, I want to take this young believer with me on these missionary journeys. He picks him up from his parents' house. His mom is, is a Jew. His father's a Greek. Timothy's not circumcised. And Paul says, we're about to go into this territory where a lot of Jewish people are. And Paul says, Timothy, this is what I want to do. I want to circumcise you. Now, you're free from the law, Timothy. You don't have to be circumcised like the Old Testament law prescribed because you're justified in God's eyes through faith in Jesus Christ and in his works. But, Timothy, we're going to a region where there's a lot of Jewish people, and it's going to offend them that you aren't circumcised. And so Paul circumcises Timothy, a young man. He's so secure in the gospel, so secure in his relationship with Jesus Christ that he's free to lose his life and to die to his own desires so that other people would come to know Jesus. They've seen his proven worth. See, sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others flows out of security in the gospel. It flows out of your security in your relationship with God. And that's the kind of life that Timothy lived, this life of radical sacrifice for other people, for God's glory, because he had all that he ever needed and wanted in in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in Epaphroditus too. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I've thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, And your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus was the messenger and the minister of the church. The church at Philippi said, we we, want to get this gift together, whatever it was, money, books, cloaks, blankets, I don't know. Wanted to get something, this gift, and take it to Paul. But obviously the entire church could not go. The entire church couldn't go with Mark to Haiti. All, I mean, all of us. I guess we could, but they couldn't. Couldn't all go. So he said, Epaphroditus, we need somebody here. Anybody here volunteer to take this package to Paul in Rome. And Epaphroditus raises his hand and says, that's me. And so he goes, and somewhere along the way, or somewhere once he got there, he got sick and he almost died. I mean, this isn't just, I have a little fever, I'm not feeling well. The man is about to death. Literally, it's uh, a neighbor to death. He was a neighbor to death. He moved right next door into the neighborhood where death lived. He was about to die. And Paul says, you know what, though? God had mercy on him. And on me also, lest more sorrow come upon me because he sacrificed his life. And Paul cared for him so deeply. He said, God spared me. Here's what's so fascinating about Epaphroditus. He's moved next door to death, so to speak. He's about to die. He hears that the Philippians heard that he moved next door to death and was about to die. And how does he respond? Paul says that he was distressed. It's this Greek word that, that is used of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and the weight and the reality of, of falling under his father's wrath for the sake of sinners to bring them to God, that, that he would absorb all of God's wrath for something he didn't do. It's the same word here. Timothy is just bearing this burden. You guys heard that I was sick. Oh, my goodness. But God had mercy on him. Now look at verse 28. Paul says, I am the more eager to send Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. 
and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So now that Epaphroditus is well, Paul says, I want to send him back to you so that your joy is unleashed, so that as you finally see him, oh my goodness, Epaphroditus, we heard that you were about to die. You're here, you're alive. Paul says, I want your joy to be unleashed. And then Paul says, uh, I won't be as anxious because I know he'll, he has made the trip and he's finally home with his family. And then Paul says, honor men like this. Receive them with joy for they nearly died for the work of Christ. So here's what we know of Epaphroditus. He was Paul's brother in the Lord. He was Paul's fellow worker and fellow soldier in gospel ministry. He volunteered to serve on behalf of the Philippian church. He risked his life to minister to Paul, and he got very sick and almost died for the gospel. What causes someone to do that? To lay down their life and to sacrifice in order to bring glory to God and good to others. I would say it's the gospel. The gospel message, his relationship with God was so secure, he's willing to lose everything for God's glory and the good of others. Their identity in Christ is what brought that security for Timothy and Epaphroditus. In Philippians 1, Timothy is called a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus is called a fellow worker and fellow soldier in gospel ministry. So it's the gospel, the good news that Christ died to bring us to God. That's what's shaping them, giving them their security, frees them to risk their life. Now, where did they learn it? They learned it from Jesus. Paul's already told the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, how Jesus was a servant and a slave, and he gave up his life to die on a cross to bring us to God. And Timothy and Epaphroditus saw the example of Jesus, and they said, I want to be like Jesus. I want to lay my life down for other people and for God's glory. Gordon Fee, a commentator, says this, Would that all of us were like Timothy, and I would add Epaphroditus, putting the interests of others as the matter of first importance. Here again, the way of humility, taking the lower road by way of the cross, is on full display. And here alone, as the gospel affects the people of God in this way, at the core of our beings, can we expect truly to count for the gospel in a world that lives the opposite, not only as a matter of course, but for the most part as its primary value. How does the world live? The world says it's all about me. It's all about, it's all about you want what you want. The gospel comes in and begins to shift those values and say, it's not about me and what I want in my marriage, in my home, in my church, in my workplace. It's about other people, their interests, their desires. It is only as we rehearse the gospel that we will be moved to serve others and die to ourselves. It is only as we rehearse the gospel and as we remind ourselves of all that God is for us and his son Jesus, that we will be reminded of the security that we have in the gospel and that we will then be empowered to risk our lives to serve others. And I think this is exactly what Jesus did in his life. Turn with me to John 13. We'll see Jesus do this. He was so secure in his relationship with his father that it empowered him to die to himself and it freed him to become a slave and a servant of others. In John 13, you know the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. 
Only a lowly servant would have done that. No one stepped up to the task to wash everyone's feet. But Jesus did. Look at John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the love that he loved them with to the end here is displayed in evidence by the fact that he's about to serve them and wash their feet. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Did you catch the flow there? John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, he rose from supper. John is saying that Jesus knew that he had everything in his relationship with the Father. He had everything he needed. He had his Father. God had put all those things in his hands. He had come from God and was going back from God, back to God. And it freed him up to serve the disciples. He knew his father had given him all things. He knew that he had come from his father and was returning to him. And these truths propelled and catapulted Jesus into service. He had everything already and it prompted humility in him. It was because Jesus was so utterly secure in his relationship with his father that he knew his identity and he knew his destiny, which was back with his father, that he was the only person in the room who was free to serve others, free to become the slave, to put on the towel and to wash everyone's feet. You see, when you rehearse the gospel and come to embrace the truth that you have all that you'll ever want and all that you'll never need in the person of Jesus Christ, then you're free to serve and not to live a life of getting and getting and getting and getting. You'll be free to live a life where you give and you give and you give and you give because you already have all that you need in Jesus. You don't need man's approval because you have God's approval because of the gospel, Christian. You don't need to fight and strive for places of position and prominence because your identity and your destiny is rooted to Jesus Christ in the gospel message. So you don't have to work hard in conversations and manipulate conversations so that the focus comes on you so that you can talk and everybody can hear you speak. You're free to say, even if nobody looks at me and talks about me, I'm still free to serve because I have the attention of the God of the universe because of what his son has done for me. Christian, you are free to lose, free to lay down your rights, give up your rights and lay down your life and risk it for other people. When you know that your life is bound up in Christ and super glued to him and that you are filled up and sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and nobody can rob you of that, when you realize that and understand that and believe that and embrace that, you are free. When you realize that your identity lies in God's grace to you and not in anything that you can do to earn it because you cannot earn it, when you realize these truths, then you are free. You don't have to worry about losing anything. 
because you have everything in Jesus and you cannot lose Jesus, Christian. You are a child of the king of the universe. What more status do you need? What more status do you need if you're a child adopted into the family of God? See, sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others flows out of security in the gospel. Timothy and Epaphroditus model this for us. The gospel freed them to serve other people. Verse 22 says, Timothy served with Paul in the gospel. Verse 30 says that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, which is the gospel. See, what makes someone live that kind of life is that they're secure in their relationship with God. They have all they need, so they're free to lose, free to risk, free to give away their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, I know this goes against everything that is American within us, doesn't it? We're selfish. We don't like to risk. What do we value? What do we cherish? We value and we cherish safety. We want to live a safe life. I don't want to risk anything. We make cars with airbags all over the place. Why? Because we value safety here. We set up retirement accounts. Why? Because we want safety in our future. Nothing wrong with airbags. If I'm in a wreck, I want the airbag. Nothing wrong with saving up for retirement. But if that's where your hope is, it won't hold up. Because you can have the airbags, you can have the retirement account, and then you can get a phone call from the doctor who says, you know what, you've got a month to live. What sustains you in that moment? The security of the gospel, your relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. See, we, we don't like risk. We value safety and security. I think Alan Hirsch is correct. He says, I do think that Christians are very risk averse. Churches are very, very risk averse. They are not places that you normally associate with adventure, risk, or creativity. Because if you want to be creative, you have to risk failure. If you want to achieve something beyond the status quo, you have to get out of the status quo, which means you're not going to make everyone happy. But the problem is without that, you never go anywhere. And so you're stuck in the stifling status quo, and that is what many churches are stuck in because we've created this safety awareness, this middle-class obsession with safety and security. I'm afraid that it will kill us in the end. A little bit of danger is good for us. Risk doesn't always have to be death-defying. Doing a good job that pushes us out of our comfort zones is very good for us. It's very good for us to risk our reputation and get on Facebook and tell people, I love Jesus Christ. It's very good for you to take that risk. It's a small risk. Just to tell people, I love Jesus I don't care what you think, and I don't care if you unfriend me. Because he's all that I'll ever want and all that I'll never ever need. And I don't need your approval. Person on Facebook that wants to unfriend me takes risk to talk about Jesus on Facebook, doesn't it? Because what's your coworker gonna think? What's your neighbor gonna think? What's your friends from high school gonna think? Risk. Read it this morning in Romans 16, 3 through 4. Never saw this before. I'm sure you have those passages you read and you're like, wow, I never saw that before. Prisca and Aquila, it says that they risked their necks. 
Some translations don't like that, and they say they risk their lives. It's the Greek word nix. They put their neck out on the line, Paul says in Romans 16. Prisca and Aquila put their necks out on the line for me. When they associated with me, because I was linked to the gospel ministry and was imprisoned, and therefore they were linked to me, and they put their necks on the line to help me, is what Paul says. I love Prisca and Aquila. I love this verse now. I want to be the kind of person that risks his life to bring good to other people and glory to God. See, the gospel frees us to take these kinds of risks and to serve big time and to risk big time. You can get involved here serving in Awana, become a selfless person like Timothy who is not concerned about his own interests but the interests of others. He's concerned about the interests of Jesus Christ. Are you, are you just watching TV on Wednesday nights? There's better things to do. I'm not against TV. Save it for Thursday night. DVR it. But on Wednesday nights, there are kids here who are learning God's word, and you can just come and listen to them and encourage them. I tell you, I remember the faces of the people of the church that I grew up in. We didn't have a wand. It was called Jam, Jesus and Me. And I remember the faces of these people that would listen to me recite verses. I can picture this one guy. I remember the time when I didn't learn my verse and I flipped in my Gideon Bible and I, I ran across John eleven thirty five, and I said, that's it. I got that verse. And I said it to him and he said, that's not in the Bible. I said, yes, it is. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. It was an easy verse to learn. But I remember that man was selfless and I can picture his face today. You can be like that. Selfless, giving up your desire to do whatever you do on Wednesday nights and come here. Or help with the, the youth on Tuesday nights. Or help on Sunday morning. Work with the children. Pass on the gospel to the next generation. You can risk your life by witnessing the people here in the city and in your workplace. When you buy your groceries, just ask the person that you've got a captive audience. They can't go anywhere. They're bringing up your groceries. They're in the middle of swiping Bleep, bleep. You know, all you got to do is say, do you go to church anywhere? I go to Grace Baptist. I'd like to invite you. They're not going to swipe and you say, do you go to church anywhere? And they take off running. They're there. Got a captive audience. But it takes a balance. You don't want to do anything dumb and risking your life. You don't want to go against anything in Scripture. You don't want to run across the freeway with the sign that says Jesus loves you and keep doing that. There are better ways to evangelize. I wouldn't recommend that way. You balance. Acts 14. They grab Paul. They drag him outside the city. They stone him. They think he's dead. What does Paul do? He gets up and goes back into the city. Sometimes you take that kind of risk. Then there's a balance. 2 Corinthians 11. The governor, Aretas, is after Paul, and they let Paul down in a basket with a lid on, quietly down the city wall into the night so he can flee for his life. There's a balance. You've got to find that balance. But take a risk for the gospel. Do something. Maybe somebody here is just kind of floating in life. There's no purpose. You're in your teens. You're in your 20s. What are you doing with your life? Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary, to go to the nations, to risk your life. To tell people about Jesus. John Payton did this. He was told by missionaries as he was going to, or told by people as he wanted to go be a missionary in the South Sea Islands. You know what they told him? You'll be eaten by cannibals. That was the risk he took. 
Ken, Ken and Cheryl George took that risk too. Come back tonight and hear about it in Papua New Guinea. There's a picture on Facebook of Ken standing next to the only cannibal left in that tribe. Have you ever sat next to someone who's at least entertaining the thought of eating you? That's a risk that they took to go visit their family and encourage the missionaries there. Come back tonight, and I'm sure he'll tell you more about it. It'll be more fascinating than Tom Brady. So as John was about to go to the South Sea Islands, they said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. How did he respond? He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus... It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He says, Mr. Dixon, it doesn't matter if cannibals eat me or if I get eaten by worms like you. When God raises us up on that last day, our bodies are going to be the same. Glorified body just like Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if a cannibal eats me or some worms. It's all the same. Do you love Jesus enough to risk your life to tell others about him? Revelation 6.11 says that the number of martyrs is filling up, and when that number is complete, then the end will come. It's like there's this number of martyrs that God has predetermined. He's chosen certain people to lay their lives down for the gospel. It says when that quotient, when when it's met, then the time comes. Maybe one of you sitting here is a martyr who would give their life for the gospel. What makes someone risk like that? It's the security of the gospel. We have all that we need in life. We have all that we need in Jesus, so we're free to lose. How do you get that? It it takes that love for Jesus. It takes passion for him. Do you love him? The way you stoke the fires of love and passion for Jesus as you rehearse the gospel. You you tell yourself, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need. You rehearse the gospel and it stokes the fire of passion and love for Jesus because you're reminded of all that he has done for you to bring you to God. George Whitfield encountered this as he preached throughout England and America in the first Great Awakening. He would preach to thousands, thousands at a time. It faced great animosity, and it was his love for Jesus that allowed him to endure such hatred. Listen to what he said after one day of preaching. I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. He's preaching out in the open air to thousands of people, and can you imagine rotten eggs and a cat's tail coming and flying? And you face that animosity, and you risk your life because you love Jesus, and you want good to come to other people, and you want glory to come to God. It's risking your life big time. See, sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others flows out of security in the gospel. It is only as we rehearse the gospel message that God loves us with this incredible, never-ending love as evidenced by his son, Jesus Christ, that we'll ever be empowered to lay our lives down for others in selfless living and risk-taking martyrdom, perhaps. 
The gospel frees you to lose. It frees you to give up your place because your identity and your destiny is not in what you want. It's in Jesus. You don't have to be number one because you have Jesus. You can give up the last of the cereal or the last bagel in your house because you have Jesus. I know what we do. We wake up and we think, oh, there's a little bit of chips in that bag or a little bit of cereal. You go to it and it's gone. And what happens? That line of anger just rides. Who took my cereal? Right? You're free to say you can have it because I have all that I'll ever want and all that I'll ever need in Jesus. You can have it. The gospel frees you to give up your positions of prominence and serve because your true position is seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full, is what John Piper says. If you live to make others glad in God, it's going to be hard. And your risks are, will be high, but I promise you, your joy will be full. That's what Paul says here. I want to send Timothy, send Epaphroditus. Joy comes to you. Joy comes to me when everyone's sacrificing and giving up their lives. May we be a church who loves Jesus so much that we'll say, I'll take great risks for him. I'll be embarrassed about what people think about me. I don't care what they think about me. I won't let that hinder me. Think, oh, what are they going to think about me? I'm not going to be embarrassed by that anymore. I'm just going to tell people that I love Jesus with all of my heart. I don't care what they think. I have his approval. It's the only approval you want to get. And if you're a Christian, you have it because of Jesus. I don't have to be man pleasers anymore. We're free. Free to be last place. Free to lose. Free to, to give up those positions of prominence that we want. We just crave. I just want people to talk about me. I just want people to, to talk about me and, and, and link to me on Facebook. I just want people to mention my name because you have Jesus. You're free of that. Free. You have everything that you ever need in the gospel message. May we become a church that says we'll risk everything and we'll selflessly just give up our lives so that other people get good and God gets the glory. May he give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Such a a challenge because we are selfish. We all want our own way. And Timothy and Epaphroditus more importantly, your son Jesus, model for us, Father, what it means to lay down our lives for your glory and for the good of others. And we thank you for that. We thank you for these elements that we're about to partake of because they remind us of the great love that you have for us in sending your son. Thank you that you did something to remedy our sinful condition. It was the life and death of your son and his resurrection. We glory in that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.